Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. The title of this podcast is Listen to the Experts, Targeted Temperature Management. Now, therapeutic hypothermia and targeted temperature management is a very hot area right now in terms of trying to treat a vast number of different types of human disorders. And there are some challenges still, and a lot of questions are being asked and how best to deliver therapeutic hypothermia. So for this particular podcast, we have the pleasure of uh, talking to Dr. Justin Lumby. Uh, Dr. Lumby is Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at Woodbury Health in Connecticut, and he's an expert in the use of therapeutic hypothermia. I think being a Chief Medical Officer, of course, is a very demanding job that really d- details how you can best treat your patients. So, Justin, welcome to our podcast today. Thank you, Dalton, and it's great to see you, and thanks for inviting me to this. Our pleasure, our pleasure. I would also like to thank Zoll for sponsoring this podcast. And the title of this particular podcast is going to be uh, During t- uh, uh, Targeted Temperature Management, What Matters Most? And that's the question, what matters most? That's the question that a lot of people are asking. And, you know, questions like speed of cooling or precision of cooling. So, Justin, in your clinical expertise, what are some of the things that you think matter most to have a successful targeted temperature management protocol? And that's, a, that's a wonderful question, and, and it's, a, it's a good reason why people are asking this, because it, there has been a paradigm shift. Uh, we've gone from having uh, an actual lower temperature target than the core temperature or the euthermia to now um, being really at uh, at the normal body temperature and everything. Um, I, I think it's well known that post-cardiac arrest, uh, hyperthermia can occur in individual that have had a, a cardiac arrest. Um, and we know also that hyperthermia, meaning, uh, elevated temperatures or fever can have a devastating effect on recovery. Uh, so therefore, um, the, the, the unknown here is, is when does fever really start post-cardiac arrest? Well, there's a lot of factors that influence that. Uh, the cause of the cardiac arrest, number one, uh, but also the inflammatory uh, process that occurs after the cardiac arrest. And is there an infectious process? These factors determine the cardiac, uh, post-cardiac arrest fever w- w- will occur. And there's also the third one, which is the neurologic fever, which you can get if you've had significant brain injury. All of those elements are somewhat variable in terms of when the onset of the temperature increase occurs. So from my own perspective, it makes sense that we do something that is consistent each and every time. So you always prevent the temperature from going up to any significant or any fever levels. So There are several devices out there that have these beautiful biofeedback mechanisms. In fact, Zoll produces one, whereby the the machine senses when the temperature of the patient is escalating, and it's able to then intervene and bring the core temperature down. And so it's really preventing fever from occurring beyond your core temperature. And that's a very nice thing because it's almost like a thermostat that's sitting there and waiting for the temperature to slowly climb up. And as soon as it it does, it fires. And why is that important? Well, you asked about cooling speed and the precision. Both of these things are somewhat intertwined. In terms of getting people 
to be at core temperature or euthermia, I think it's better if we can keep them from climbing. So my, my answer to cooling speed would be get them on a protocol immediately post-cardiac arrest and make sure you keep their temperatures at an targeted temperature throughout the post-cardiac arrest therapy uh, stage. So in my mind, I would say bring the patient to the ED, then up to the ICU, and immediately get some kind of device on the patient so that the device is ready to kick in as soon as the temperature starts climbing. And that prevents the fever from occurring. Because like I said earlier, if there's fever, you're going to have much, much worse outcome in that patient. And we know that from a lot of studies. The precision is equally as important because if you have a lot of fluctuation in the temperature, there is evidence out there that fluctuation in temperature during post-cardiac arrest phase is going to impact the outcome. Because you can imagine if I am at 37.8 degrees centigrade and then next hour I'm at 39, that's a 1.2 degree centigrade increase or 2.2 um, it may be not that much, but it's got devastating effect on, on the patient. So you need to ensure that it's accurate, precise, and it does not alterate very much at all. Do you think that the way we cool the patients uh, in terms of maybe some ways to cool are more precise than others, do you think that has entered, entered into some of the maybe um, different results we get in our clinical trials? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as you know, from seeing some of the randomized control trials that have come out, starting with HACA and, and now the TTM 1 and 2, there are variabilities in there that are very hard to control. The confounding factors that we can't really put into some computation and come out with the reason how that impacted it. And that is certainly one of those things, Dalton, where, you know, a couple of the patients in all the studies that we I just mentioned had higher temperatures, lower temperatures, crossed over to the other arm at times. So it's very hard to determine how all of this played in. Uh, and that's why I think having a very steady, controlled, precise temperature is immensely important to a favorable outcome. I also think that you, uh, your point, uh, once you get the patient stabilized to actually put them on some type of hypothermic or temper targeted temperature management protocol is so important because in our preclinical studies, we showed that just one period of uh, hyperther induced hyperthermia, one period for a three-hour period, just one, actually affect long-term outcome in that animal experiment. So in a patient that has repetitive periods of hypothermia, you can imagine that might have an accumulative effect. It's multiple insults to your point, and I think it, it's a very good point. And a lot of people don't under know this, but just the cardiac arrest itself creates a massive immunologic or inflammatory surge uh, that can result in, in significant fever. And as you know, uh, then impacts the neurologic outcome. Um, people that have a heart attack, if I have a heart attack right now, there's a good chance that I'm gonna spike a little bit of the temperature during the post-cardiac arrest, uh, post-heart attack phase, and it's early. So going back to how soon we start and how quickly we get something in place, I think is very, very important and, and a mechanism of controlling it. Very good. So uh, the next question, Justin, uh, based on what you've just talked about is, how difficult is it to prevent fever? Well, it's not a difficult process in itself. It becomes difficult when you bring people into it. 
And because most healthcare organizations are very complex, so you need to put together a process that's hardwired. You need to educate your staff, your nursing staff, your mid-level staff, your provider or physician staff, and your interns and residents that might come through the, the ICU. Because if you have variables in all of that, someone's going to say, now we don't need to start this yet. No, you always need to do it the same way so that you don't run into uh, delays in, in starting the therapy. And so my answer is the temperature management in itself is not difficult. It's just the process and people around it. So getting our staff educated, using mm -hmm. a protocol that's always in place and it's always consistent and followed through on starting on in the ED and in the ICU and what you do for each and every patient, regardless of if they have a fever or not, so that when they do develop a fever, the mechanism is in place to prevent it from getting worse. And then of course, having bundles in there to make sure you prevent infection, make sure you prevent uh, any types of temperature spikes using other agents or, or using the tools that I mentioned. Fantastic. Okay, so uh, how about medications for fever prevention? What are your thoughts regarding what type of different medications you use for the patient to prevent fever? Yeah, th there, are, there are certainly several medications that we can use. Um, the caveat uh, that, that, that I always bring up is, is that this is, again, an escalation process, but Tylenol is a, is a good antipyretic, but Tylenol also has... Uh, side effects. You know, if someone comes into your ICU post cardiac arrest and they've had a downtime of four or five minutes, there's going to be a significant end organ injury, not only to the brain, but to the liver, to the kidneys, to the heart. And all of those things, the, the organs that I just mentioned, are going to be in a little bit of an inflamed state. So you have to be careful when you use agents or drugs that might be impacted by that, those, those organs, i.e. Tylenol is metabolized by the liver. If the liver is not working the way it's supposed to, you can cause more harm. Kidneys are, uh, can be impacted by different antipyretics if you use an NSAID. So it's just very important that you watch out and there's always a risk of some kind of a side effect from these drugs. But generally speaking, using um, a, a sort of an escalation pro protocol, using agents that, that prevent shivering, uh, using different types of medications in an escalating manner to prevent fever is a good starting point, but it's only part of the formula. I think you really need to have additional mechanism, more mechanical mechanism to ensure that the, the fever is controlled. Very good. So Great. the short answer is maybe, yeah. sorry, Dalton, Medication is alone is not going to give you the outcome and, and the, the control that you need. Certainly not for those that have higher temperature sort of fever spikes. So before I let you go, I, I have to ask you this question. Um, do you think we know everything about targeted temperature management? Are there other things we have to learn? I mean, obviously the TTM2 study just came out and uh, those, those uh, results were very surprising to many people. But what do you think in terms of moving forward? What are the big questions we have to address and answer in the field of therapeutic hypothermia? No, I think there's many, many more um, elements to this that we're going to learn moving forward. I think both TTM1 and TTM2 were excellent studies to give us focus on, on, on new 
options for therapy and also the pathophysiologic mechanism for a lot of these things. But we don't want to forget about the other benefits of cooling. And I'm going back to, you know, therapeutic hypothermia. Mm -hmm. And I've spoken on this in many, many venues. In fact, at Chilling, uh, each and every time I go there, I try to bring it up, which was there is a, a, an inherent benefit to cooling people, which is the, the, the metabolic respite that you achieve, which goes beyond the fever issue and everything we just talked about. The metabolic respite is taking each and every cell in your body and setting it into some sort of a, a respite or hibernating state, or at least a low metabolic state. So the oxygen demand goes down. The need for that same cardiac output goes down because they don't need as much oxygen and you can allow recovery with, with the, 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 the end organs while you keep these patients cool. So I think this is a paradigm shift with now going to a, a target temperature of 37.8. I think there's more to be learned about hypothermia and other disease states, including cardiac arrest, including what I alluded to, the, the lower metabolism that you can achieve by cooling people. So I think there's much, much more to come. Very good. Well, again, thank you, Justin. Uh, Dr. Justin Lumby, a Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Waterbury Health in Connecticut. We thank Justin for uh, talking with us today. Again, we thank Zoll for supporting this, uh, this podcast. And my name is Dalton Dietrich, and I'll see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.